Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. While we're continuing our series in the book of Genesis, Amazing Promises to Dysfunctional People. So let's turn our Bibles to Genesis 27, verses 10 to 29, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, When Sin is Fully Grown. There's a world of difference between planning and doing. I know. Planning leads to doing, but I also know the world is full of people who have plans that never become doing. You know, I once found a website online of the most famous unfinished buildings in the world. It reminded me of the time that Kathy and I visited Avignon, France, which has a very famous bridge that goes halfway over the river. I guess someone thought it was a good idea, but it was never completed. You know, we've also visited the Sagrada Familia. It's a large cathedral in Barcelona. It was begun by Antony Gaudi. He died in 1926, and there are plans to complete it, but not so far. You know, I once read a publication for entrepreneurs, and it began with the following words. It said, you probably have a business plan that states what you want to accomplish, what threats you see, your financial projections, how much money it will take to get there. But have you created a roadmap of how to get there or just the story of what there looks like? See, there's hardly an endeavor in human history that does not have examples of unfulfilled plans. Jesus himself spoke of a man who had begun to build a tower but did not first sit down and count the cost. There are numerous examples of positive things that people plan, and yet the necessity of moving beyond the planning stage to the doing stage. But all these are positive examples. What about human plans to sin, to do evil, to hurt others, to transgress the commands of God? See, here's what I mean. Some of us who have been hurt by another have imagined what it might be like to get that person back. But the imagination never took action, and that's a good thing. Or the man who has an attractive work colleague and secretly begins to nurture what a sexual relationship might be like with that person. Now, that's sin, but he never acts on it, and eventually he masters the impulse. But, of course, there are millions of examples where sin begins in the imagination and then works its way through to concrete plans. James speaks about that in James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. He says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So notice the three stages. The first is illicit desire. Not everything we desire is illicit, but some things are. But, says James, if desire is allowed to conceive, it will bring forth sin. That conception is the plans we have to bring our desires into being. And of course, the final stage, when sin gives birth, is not what we expected, gives birth to death. Genesis 27 well illustrates that process. Both Rebecca and her son Jacob want something. In this case, what they want is something that, well, God has promised. So we might think, what can go wrong with that? Ah, but here's where the story becomes convoluted and dark. God has promised Jacob the blessing, but Isaac, their father, wants the blessing to go to Esau. Rebekah wants the blessing to go to Isaac, as God has promised. And so she hears a conversation in her husband's tent. He's telling Esau, go and hunt game that I love and prepare it. Let's eat it together. I'll give the Abrahamic blessing to you. 
you will then inherit the blessing of God and it will impact the earth. And so one has to assume that Rebecca has already allowed her desire to master her. And now she conceives and gives birth to sin. Let's read her instructing her son what to do. And I'm reading now Genesis 27, 9 to 13. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, let your curse be on me, my son, only obey my voice and go bring them to me. See, what's important at this moment is to see that Jacob has no moral problems with this plan of deceiving his father. Perhaps the two of them, Rebecca and Jacob, have already discussed this matter in the past. The blessing belongs to Jacob, they say. God has promised us that, they say. And they're right, of course. And so they say, if that's so, then whatever it takes, let's do it. It's the commentator Hamilton who said, he who is later capable of wrestling with God wrestles little with his mother or with his conscience. That's the point. Most men and women who do evil will tell you it didn't feel like evil. It felt justified. And that's why we see Rebecca staking her life on her convictions. If there's a curse, she tells her son, let it fall on me. And at first, by the time we get to the end of the account, it's going to appear as if she gets away with it. I mean, after all, no curse falls on either Jacob or her. Everything goes as planned, according to script. But about the curse, well, hold that thought for a moment. Well, let's continue to read verses 14 to 19. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. The skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son, Jacob. So he went to his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. There are little hints in this narrative that demonstrate for us the, the distance that must have already been there between Rebekah and Isaac. You know, I noticed that verse 14, it speaks of Rebekah preparing the kind of food that Jacob's father loved, not the kind of food that Rebekah's husband loved. The relationship between them is distant. Now, that sometimes happens between couples that no longer speak. But of course, Rebecca does more. She goes through Esau's clothing. She violates Esau. She dresses Jacob in his clothes and then covers his body with goat hair. Now, we're not told exactly how she does that. I think it was elaborate. Again, I have to assume that she's imagined this many times before. In her mind, she must have thought how to make this work, how to so apply the skins to her son that he would actually feel like Esau. We can also imagine her at times hugging her son Esau and at the same time feeling his neck, his shoulders, all the while imagining how she might reproduce this and deceive her blind husband. One of the worst things about some sins is that they're not impulsive at all. They take a great deal of time to plan. They continue to live in the imagination until the day when they're conceived. 
But now the time of conception of her sin is at hand, and she doesn't have to imagine how to do this thing. She already knows. Her action was already lived out in her imagination, perhaps millions of times before. And then she's done. Her son wears his brother's clothing. His skin feels like his hairy brother, and his smell directly corresponds to his brother. You know, I've often wondered how well Jacob was able to make his voice sound like his brother. And since they were twins, perhaps there was a timber and a pitch that sounded familiar, but we get a sense that Jacob was in danger of giving himself away quite early. Well, we see that he enters Isaac's tent and he says, my father, and then he says, here I am. And if you compare that to verse 31, Esau enters the tent and Esau says, let my father arise and eat his son's game. You know, that sounds confident, but Jacob sounds hesitant. It sounds like he's trying too hard. And it is this that leads to Isaac's sense of uncertainty. Look at the beginning of verse 20. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? And immediately we see that this matter of deception is not going to be as easy as both Jacob and Rebekah had hoped it might be. The old man is hesitant. He's uncertain. He's suspicious. This plan could fall apart right at the beginning. And what we're going to see, what follows next, is that Jacob, because he is now fully committed to this deception, there's no way back now, he's going to do something that under normal circumstances he would never have done. He takes what began as a sin and he makes that sin so much darker and so much deeper than anything he would have ever dreamt of doing before. And that's the nature of sin. Once you start on a pathway, it will lead you to greater and greater sin all the time. And we're going to have to examine that in detail and apply that to our own lives and ask ourselves, oh Lord, am I doing just such a thing? Keep me from such action. The mission of Back to the Bible Canada is simple. We teach the Bible. It's a commitment to bringing the light of Christ to a dark world in such desperate need. We all face dark days, but we know that the living Word of God brings light and hope like nothing else. If Back to the Bible Canada or any of its associated ministries or resources have impacted your life with Jesus, we're hoping this month you would join us in reaching an important fiscal year-end goal of $342,000. Your gift makes these ministries possible every day and continues to sustain the Bible teaching programs you enjoy on this station and the many other mediums made available for teaching the Bible within Canada or in fact around the world. Would you offer your support this month? Your generosity makes this ministry possible. Call today with your gift at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. The problem with sin, especially sin against others, be it deception or theft or, or even slander, once we begin, we often need to up the ante in order to remain secure. I've seen it often, especially when it comes to slander. You know, someone takes to destroying someone else's reputation in order to gain advantage over them, and in so doing, you know, we end up saying something so much more than we had originally planned to say. 
It's as if sin takes on a life of its own and drags the sinner into ever greater sin. And as we have seen, once Jacob started down the pathway of deception, and once his father became suspicious, Jacob had to cover up his sin. And the only way to do that is to do so with ever greater sin. So look at verse 20. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you found it so quickly, my son? And he answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. Well, in essence, what Jacob does now is to abuse the sacred name. Years later, when Israel was given the Ten Commandments, the fourth command said, you shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And so please notice that Jacob here doesn't just say, God gave me success. He uses the name of the covenant, the name Yahweh. And even more ironic is the reality that this is the blessing that Jacob is trying to secure for himself, the blessing from the sacred name, the name that he now invokes to deceive, to lie, the name that he now abuses and disrespects. You know, the later promise is that that God would not overlook this. But Jacob is so committed now, he'll do whatever it takes to complete his deception. So let's continue to read verses 21 to 25. Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are truly my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate it and he brought him wine and he drank. You know, for just a moment, let's, let's turn our attention from Jacob to his father Isaac. And we have to wonder about him, don't we? We know that Jacob can't disguise his voice well enough. The old man knows he's listening to Jacob and not to Esau. And if only he had slowed down here and said, you know, something's out of order. I mean, how is it that your hands feel like Esau's hands, but your voice sounds like Jacob's voice? Something is amiss. And of course, at this point in time, we have to wonder why Isaac didn't simply call one of his servants, come on into the tent and would you clear up this confusion for me? We know he isn't talking to Rebecca, but he has probably hundreds of staff, everything from, you know, servants who oversee meals to servants who take care of business interests, water engineers who oversaw his irrigation system. He's got a standing military. They guarded his interests. Was there a person among all of that staff that he could have called? I've got to assume that there was, but he doesn't do it. And you've got to wonder why. Why not slow this process down and and clear up this confusion? But if we think about it, we'll know the answer. When we started to study this incident, we did notice that Isaac, instead of planning a public blessing for his son Esau, had already decided he's going to tell no one. He would bless Esau privately. That's because he didn't want a discussion with Rebekah, a discussion that would turn out to be an argument. And Isaac is not innocent, don't you see it? He wants his own disobedience to God. He wants a private blessing, and it's precisely because of this that he has no way to deal with his own confusion. And furthermore, the sooner this matter is over and done with, the better. And so in his confusion, he simply presses on. 
but he has one more test. Verse 26 says, Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. (laughs) It's hard not to read this and to think of another kiss so many years later. You know, in Matthew 26, verses 48 and 49, we read, Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. You know, the kiss is a sign of friendship. It signals that the one kissing seeks to bless the other. And so a traitor's kiss is the most hateful thing of all. David knew that well. Listen to what he said. Psalm 55, verses 12 to 14. For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I would bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man my equal, a companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. If I could speak personally here in some 40 years of ministry, this is where my wounds lie. Not from people who oppose me publicly, but from people who once shared prayer with me and then had the greatest capacity to harm me. Isaac experienced that. David experienced that. Jesus experienced that. All those who have been called by God to give leadership do experience this. It's a wound that cuts so deep, it's very difficult to heal from that. And so with a kiss from his son, Isaac believes, surely my son is not going to deceive me. And with that, of course, comes the blessing. And I'm now reading verses 27 to 29. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Now, I have, as we have discussed our section of Scripture, spoken of the significance of the Abrahamic blessing, and I'm not going to repeat everything that I've said before here. But notice this image of a banquet in the promised land. Notice this image of the blessing of universal dominion. You will be the first of all the nations. The nations of the earth will serve you. You is a blessing that makes you the first among all nations. Now, of course, eventually that blessing would fall on Jesus, Jacob's greatest son, who would become the only source of salvation to the world. He who is king of kings and lord of lords. That in itself is the drama of the entire Bible. But I fear I can't get there without dealing with what seems like the injustice of all of this. I mean, did you just hear this? Does Jacob get away with all of this? Does he even invoke the sacred name and blaspheme God and then get the blessing? Yeah, he does. But I mean by that, that Jacob got the blessing, not because he deceived his father. He got the blessing because God had chosen him for that purpose before he was born. If Jacob had not been involved in this plot to deceive his father and his brother, God would have intervened and Jacob would have gotten the blessing. But Jacob has no faith. But Jacob, nor Rebekah, nor Isaac, nor Esau got off scot-free. Far from it. The consequences of this. Well, Esau resolves to murder Jacob. Jacob flees for his life. Then he meets Laban 
who gives him some life lessons on what deceit really looks like. And then when Jacob is an old man, his own sons deceive him and sell Jacob's favorite son into slavery. And by the time Jacob meets Pharaoh, not long before his death, and the king of Egypt asks Jacob his age, he says, and here, let me quote from Genesis 47, verse 9, he says to Pharaoh, few and evil have been the days of my life. Indeed, the bitterness from this initial act of deception unleashes on Jacob's life the course of a life that is a bitter one. And Rebecca doesn't get off scot-free either. Eventually, we'll find out that she'll never see her son again. And Esau and Isaac are separated as well. And Isaac, the man who once exercised leadership in his home, becomes an insignificant man whom is hardly mentioned again. And the lessons to be learned are significant. Yeah, it is true that Christ, through his grace, through the blood that is shed for us, forgives his people of all their sins. But in order to prepare us for eternity, God will allow us to feel the weight of our own deceit so that he might purge the evil from us. It is his disciplining hand. Please understand, says Paul, God is not mocked. What we sow, we reap. If this describes you, I urge you, find the person you've sinned against. Make it right. Why would you continue to suffer? John, I'm really interested in this whole idea of sort of the development of sin, that, that it seems to begin as a seed and start to grow in us and grow in us and grow in us. And if we're not careful, if we don't derail it, it becomes truth. It becomes something that we do or, or something that we are. How, how do we go about, I guess, the question is derailing this maturation of this seed of temptation? Yeah, it's amazing how uh, the longer, I mean, Romans, you know, in, in chapter 8, Paul says, the mindset on the flesh is death. So I, I think it starts by just constantly rehearsing and rehearsing and rehearsing so that we become focused on the sin. And we begin to imagine to ourselves, I mean, these are the advantages if I took this pathway. Um, and, you know, we might say to ourselves, I better be wrong, it would be wrong. But we go back in our imagination over and over again. And as we continually replay the same act, eventually the time will come when that act will form a plan and we'll see how that plan gets done. I mean, we know that, uh, let's say, in terms of sexual sin. I mean, keep on imagining it. Eventually, you'll bring it to fruition. And it's true of every single form of sin. So we need to lay it before the Lord, call it sin, and ask the Lord to give us the mind of the Spirit. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Amazing Promises to Dysfunctional People, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. From February 7th to 16th, 2020, make plans to join us for our Back to the Bible Canada Laugh Again Southern Caribbean Cruise. You'll be sailing the seas for nine days aboard Royal Caribbean's Explorer of the Seas, visiting Aruba, Curacao, Bonaire, and more. You'll be joining Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, and special friends and musicians, The Weebs. You'll be spiritually enriched and challenged, laugh and be encouraged, and enjoy great fellowship and refreshment. Come on your own or with your family and friends as you enjoy incredible ports of call, 
everything the ship has to offer, and a week of ministry designed specifically for the occasion. Check it out and get on board at backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425.